You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Well, here we are in the middle of chapter 13. And as we've seen in the past few weeks, Matthew has arranged in chapter 13 of his gospel a series of parables. In them contain wisdom that has never before been heard. And at the point now where Jesus is preaching, he's still preaching to the mixed crowd. And we know that in verse 34, he says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. But if we look at verse 36, Then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And at that point on, his focus is going to be on his disciples. But the crowd that Jesus was preaching, the parables of the soils and of the weeds, and now he's concluding this portion with the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, this crowd had every type of hear. Had every type of hear with all kinds of expectations and assumptions. From his disciples to genuine seekers, to people who were genuinely and simply intrigued, but their interest would go no further than hearing what they wanted to hear as opposed to what they needed to hear. The crowd also included critics, people who were opposed to what Jesus had to say simply because they wanted to complain. We know what that's like. Recall those people who walked past Christ if you fast forward to the crucifixion in Matthew, where Jesus was hanging on the cross and they're walking past him. They're wagging their heads in derision and they're saying, and they're mocking him actually, saying, save yourself, Savior. But part of those in the crowd were religious leaders. Those were religious leaders whose reactions ranged from being threatened by this unconventional preacher whose appeal seemed to know no bounds. And then there's also those religious leaders who had a specific pride that tries to convince themselves that this Jesus is delusional. He's talking all this kingdom talk, and he doesn't even have a place to call home. But nonetheless, there's something that keeps them following Jesus. Something that keeps them following Jesus, if anything, to accomplish the plan and the purposes of the one true sovereign, doing that in his suffering, his death and his vindication through the resurrection to bring about the kingdom that he's talking about. Yet all of them, all of this crowd, they had this in common. They were longing for deliverance. They were longing for deliverance from the evil of the day. The evil, I say in quotes, because sometimes people would look at the evil as from the religious establishment. Sometimes this evil was from the oppression of the occupying force that is Rome. Sometimes this evil was coming from anyone other than themselves, no matter how perceived or how true that was. But the crowd grew up. The crowd was familiar with a lot of the stories that they heard about Abraham. Abraham called out to become the father of their nation the Jews. They heard of Moses delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And they heard of David 
their king, their glorious king. And all of these were prophesied to have led to an anointed leader who would ultimately become their deliverer from evil, perceived and otherwise, but especially from the oppression and the evil of Rome and the occupying authority of the day. They were expecting their Messiah, but their sights were set too low. They were looking for temporal relief. They were looking for an earthly victory. And Jesus, as he does so well, he defies all of their categories. He spoke to the very center of those assumptions, of those, those expectations, false as they were, about what the kingdom is and what true deliverance and true hope, true hope lies. This one man, Jesus, who owned nothing, he humbled himself to the lowest point and the most humiliating of deaths, this Jesus spoke of a kingdom that would grow into something bigger than anyone could ever expect. And that's the point. I want us to see in this passage this thing, that the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven at once, they challenge the expectations. They get to the heart of those assumptions that the hearers had back then. And at the same time, It offered them hope. At the same time, it offered them hope. So look at the words of Jesus in verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. Now think about this. Jesus himself, the creator, he knew that the mustard seed was not the smallest seed in the absolute sense. That honor belongs to the jewel orchid, in case anyone was interested. The point here is that the relative, relative to the size of the seed, which in fact is very small, in fact, it was the smallest known seed at the time in that region, but the point is that the end result after the seed is grown is that it becomes a tree that's larger than anything else in the field. Look at verse 32. But when it has grown, the mustard seed has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. And look at who benefits. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So there's this picture clearly of a tree. Now, the picture of a tree with their birds making nests in it, that's used and has been used to describe a nation, a powerful nation, and all that benefit from it. Think about the prophet Daniel. He used it to describe Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his kingdom, Babylon. It was the largest and the most dominant power of its time. And then in Ezekiel, He speaks of a serious power and provision for everyone under its domain. It's been described as a great cedar, more beautiful than all the trees of Eden. This beautiful picture of a tree providing shelter, providing food, providing all the things that are needed for the the powerful um, country of its time. But what was common to both is also what set them apart from Jesus' illustration. And that's this. Because Babylon and Assyria, as powerful as they were, they were subject to the hand of God. 
the ultimate sovereign. He had determined their rising up and their downfall. Theirs was not an everlasting kingdom. And that's made obvious because we're speaking about them in the past tense. There's only one everlasting kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God. In this parable, Jesus is emphasizing that growth and the resultant size shows that no matter the beginning of God's kingdom, be it from humble origins, a mustard seed, it becomes so large and that so many benefit from its very existence. Its very existence. And think about the things that we benefit from. Think, think about over history. Think about the schools and the educational institutions that we are a part of or have been a part of in the past. Some I know have, have uh, had some mission creep or mission abandonment. But there's hospitals and the justice system. Think about urban planning and the organization of cities and communities that we live in. Those just don't happen by happenstance. Those are all taking the talents of those people who were involved in creating them. And that's what we call the common grace of God. And we benefit from that. All of his creation benefits from that. Whether one is a believer or not in this age or throughout history, because, God, because of God's common grace, he sends the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. He causes the sun to shine upon the good as well as the evil. That's the impact that the kingdom of God, the realm, the domain of the creator has upon everyone. God's kingdom by virtue of being his grows and it cannot be stopped. God's kingdom cannot be stopped. And like the mustard seed being the smallest seed of its kind, Jesus, he continues this point of small beginnings with the parable of the leaven. Look at verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Leaven. Now, I know a lot of us, when we think about it, we think, aha, leaven is a type of sin. What's Jesus talking about sin for? Well, you would be true. Uh, you would be right. It is true. There are times that Leaven is used as a type of sin in the Bible. But I want us to understand the immediate context within, within it is, uh, where it is here. The context is actually what's going to determine whether leaven is spoken of in a negative or a positive sense. So given that Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven, which is good, then the agent with which it spreads, the leaven, therefore must also be good. And that's consistent. That's the consistent point that Jesus is making with the parable of the mustard seed. There's two things I want us to notice in this parable. It's a short parable. You, you read it and you consider, wow, uh, what's he saying here? But there's many things to consider as we look at it. But I want us to notice two things. The first is the amount of flour. The amount of flour, three measures. What's the measure? Well, according to many, three measures is enough to bake at least 50 loaves of bread. I know you guys, there's a lot of sourdough bread makers out here. So you guys know what it takes to make one loaf. 
But here we have three measures that's enough to make at least 50 loaves of bread. Think about that. That's more than one household needs, especially when you consider that food storage is at a premium. There's no refrigeration there. But even if having that much flour and dough is for one household, it would speak to the longevity of the supply. God's supply is endless. But consider this, the Sermon on the Mount. And we consider the other-centered, centric, the selflessness that Jesus preached in his Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps this woman was considering providing enough food, not just for her household, but for her neighbors, her synagogue, for visitors, for those who were less fortunate. Because isn't that what God's kingdom does? Isn't that what God's kingdom does and those who are in it? To reflect his generosity by giving ourselves. He knows it all too well. Second thing to note is that Jesus mentions a woman. It's very unusual during this time. Some have said that this is to show the inclusiveness of the kingdom. As Galatians says, there are no more distinctions that the kingdoms of the world places on us to divide us, but we are in fact one in Christ. Our distinctions actually are enhanced by serving one another. Think about the differences of the body of Christ and how they're used to benefit each other. Jesus is saying to the very mixed crowd with all their presumptions about who is fit for the kingdom of God, especially as it was common to think of women as second class, Jesus is saying this, that the kingdom is for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman. Now being a parable, the point illustrated by Jesus is this, that the kingdom of heaven, its power and influence spreads such that no corner of the world is untouched or affected by it. Nothing is unaffected by God's kingdom. As I stated earlier, the point I want us to see in this passage is that the parables of the mustard seed and leaven, they they challenged the expectations and the assumptions of the hearers back then, but it also gave them hope. So what does that mean for us here today? How do these parables challenge our assumptions and give us hope? In addition to what we just unpacked, there's two elements in our passage that are so vital that they help us receive that hope and encouragement we need, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our experience, regardless of our theological tradition, whatever season of life we find ourselves in. These are two things. With the help of scholar R.T. France, the first vital principle is this. In God's kingdom, success is assured through his word. In God's kingdom, success is assured through his word. Think about this. In Matthew, when Jesus was ushering in his kingdom, the first words he spoke in his ministry was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He spoke his reality. He spoke this reality. He spoke reality. 
He called those who are willing to humble himself themselves to repentance. And even in this section of Matthew, he opened up his preaching of the parables with his word on how we would receive his word with the parable of the soils. Remember that. And as he spoke creation into existence, I want us to think about that. God spoke everything that we see, feel, hear, and experience. All the things we see and all the things we don't see, he spoke into existence. He speaks his new creation into existence. Think about John 15, verse 3. In his exhortation for us to abide in him, the true vine, he says, you are already clean by the word I have spoken to you. You are already clean by the word that I have spoken to you. He keeps us. He sustains us in his entire creation by what? By the word of his power. By the very word of his power. And I like what the ESV study Bible says. I know some of you got that out there. ESV study Bible, it says this. The very word of God used to describe his kingdom, the very word of God used to describe his kingdom is the very means and the power he uses to accomplish it. It's the very means he uses to accomplish it. And if you heard from this pulpit many a time, what God commands, he creates. What God commands, he creates. You remember our call to worship, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verse 10. The inevitability of the success of God's kingdom is assured precisely because it is of God and precisely because it is his word. It is his word. Isaiah 55, verse 10 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, verse 11, so shall my word be. So shall my word be. So shall my word be. That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In God's kingdom, success is assured through his word. The second vital piece is this. In the parable of the leaven, power came not from within, but from without. The power of transformation came from without. So like the leaven that was added to the flour, The power was not inherent in the flower, but it had come from outside itself. Leon Morris, New Testament scholar, he says this, the parable makes the point that the power that affects change comes from outside the dough. The mass of dough does not change itself. As much resolve as we could muster, as much self-help as we think we can give ourselves, in the end, we're powerless. We're impotent. I remember my grandfather used to say, the best help is help yourself. It's true, but it only went so far. The power 
that Leon Morris is talking about is none other than God's living word. And that's what is amazing because the mustard seed is also alive and it grows. But unlike the mustard seed, the word of God is imperishable. Hebrews 4.12 says this, the word of God is living and powerful. It's living and powerful. And as much as we read the word of God, it reads us. It convinces us. It convicts us in our need for him. That's what the word of God does because God's word is living and powerful. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Listen to what Peter says about the living word of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, Peter commands us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart because, in verse 23, since you have been born again, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And look at this, church. And this is the good news that was preached to you. This word, the living and abiding word of God, is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. The good news is that this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about has a king himself who spoke creation into existence. And this creation spat in his face. This creation rebelled against him and rejected his blessing. And what did this king do? What has been hidden from the foundation of the world in verse 35 was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. For the sake of you. This kingdom, like a small mustard seed, had humble beginnings. And its king was born a helpless babe to an unwed teenage mother. In our sin and rebellion, for our high treason, punishable by death, this king then laid down his rights He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did this, as Matthew says, so he would save his people from their sins. And this is the deliverance that the crowd did not expect, but it is the salvation that they, like us today, needed. This is the good news, that Christ the King has died for my sins. And if you are his and called to be his very own, he has died for your sins. And this is the hope that these parables bring to those who have ears to hear. And for those of us who have heard and have believed and are hearing and are believing in this gospel, church, listen up. The implications and the power are far-reaching. The implications of the gospel are powerful and far-reaching. Why? Because they're sanctifying us. They're sanctifying us, making us ready for what? The king's return. The king is coming for us as people. 
Now, here are some of those implications by way of application for us today. As we have seen, like leaven spreading throughout the dough, the word of God is living and it permeates our entire being. So the first application here, think about the parable of the soils. Despite the periodic thorns and the moments of deceit brought on by sin or temptation to sin, the word of God through meditation on it, the word of God through meditation on it, it occupies our hearts such that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. We're transformed by the renewal of our minds as we meditate on God's word, which is living and abiding in us. That leaven that is hidden in the flower and spread so that all is leavened, that presents a picture of our sanctification. Psalm 119.11, your word, O Lord, have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word, O Lord, have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's two parts here to this. I want us to develop the discipline. Let's develop the, list, the discipline of memorizing and internalizing God's word. This is a grace. This is a grace. This is, this is not to earn our salvation. This is to live into the reality of our salvation. There's power in God's word a power that we wouldn't know otherwise than through his grace. And the second, in moments of weakness and temptation, continue to depend on each other. Continue to depend on one another, to seek the prayer that's needed, to allow for times of confession, and also give time, plenty of time for encouragement. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Confess to one another. Live life with one another. That's what the body of Christ does. Paul writes to the Ephesian church. He says this, speaking the truth in love to one another, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, into the head who is Christ, so that when each part is working properly, when each part is involved in times of receiving confession and loving one another and bearing one another's burdens in times when praying for one another and helping out one another, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now the second application is tied to the first, but the second application is this. The word of God lives in us such that our bodies are no longer seen as ways just to experience pleasure. Our bodies are no longer seen as just ways to experience pleasure, but because we are his. Because we are his body and soul, bought by the precious blood of Jesus, our bodies are to become instruments of righteousness. Instruments of righteousness for his good, for our good and for his glory. And he gives us the desire to do so. Temptation is real. It's a struggle. We all succumb or suffer from temptation. But there's no temptation such as is common to man, that God is faithful. And with that temptation, through that temptation, he will provide a way out. He's faithful. 
And because we're members of one another, we can use the gifts given to us to benefit others. We could benefit others in the body, in those in our workplace, in the schools, in our neighborhoods. The living and abiding word does this. Again, Paul writes this, shepherds and teachers preach the word in order to do what? To equip the saints, that's you and me, equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's be mindful. Let's be intentional about that. Let's walk in humble and joyful obedience together. Because church, this is the reality. This is the inevitability. This is the beauty of the kingdom of God. That as a church, Roots Community Church, and as church throughout the world, we're embassies of his kingdom in this world. We get to witness the kingdom. We're emissaries. We're ambassadors. We get to represent that kingdom, and we do so by reflecting the image of the king. That's what we get to do as a church, and we do so by loving one another in the ways that I just described. And church, this is the hope that we have in these parables today. And this is the hope, the gospel hope that we could bring to bring Christ's influence and hope to others. And church, we're assured of this because God's word is true and it will succeed in the thing for which he sent it. Let's pray. Father, what grace you have shown us by revealing who you are in your word. Your word is true. It's sufficient. What you say will come to pass, that of your own will, you brought us forth by the word of truth. Thank you, Lord. Your gospel is faithful to bring about in us the obedience of faith. And Father, through the assurance and power of your gospel, we pray that we would abide in Christ and bear much fruit for our joy and for your glory. For you are faithful, and it is in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen.